0: Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. This week in honor of 4th of July, we're gonna be taking some time off away from a new episode on the podcast. But I wanted to share our sister podcast, the iDocumentary podcast that I do with Dr. Drew Bateman. And I'll share a portion of our discussion with Dr. Lou Catania with you. And I think it was a really fun discussion to have. And um, and I learned a lot about Lou and a lot about kind of his perspectives on the history of our profession and where he thinks our profession is going in the future. So please enjoy that and subscribe to the iDocs podcast by searching uh, E-Y-E-D-O-C-S in your favorite podcast app. And we'll catch you in the next couple of weeks. We'll have some really exciting discussions with the developers of Lipoflow, Dr. Carolyn Blackie and Brian Regan, a couple of the developers. And then the following week, we'll have a conversation uh, really encompassing all of dry eye with Dr. Scott Schachter. It's a great conversation, and I know you guys will enjoy that one as well. So um, have a great week. Happy Fourth of July, and we'll see you next week. Today's show is sponsored by iCode Education. At iCode Education, we create and host high-quality, relevant, COPE-approved online optometric CE. We offer practice management courses from billing and coding, fee assessment, and chart auditing to clinical courses that focus on topics ranging from the anterior segment to the posterior segment to myopia control and neurological disease. Additionally, we partner with associations to help them provide their members and non-members with online continuing education at their own pace, on their own schedule. This allows our associations to generate non-dues revenue and provide a valuable service for their members who are allowed to obtain hours from distance learning entities. Check us out at icodeeducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E education.com. One more time, E-Y-E-C-O-D-E education.com. About Luke's is kind of your involvement in pioneering and really facilitating a lot of the residency programs within optometry. So, what's your perspective on
1: that, and how did that grow? And well, it started. It started in Rochester, New York, and uh, I I was working. I had I I was starting a practice, but obviously I you know I had to supplement my income, and I started working at a uh, a health uh, center, an HMO evolving HMO, and it was uh, quite a dynamic program. Uh, it was it was run by the University of Rochester and the uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and it, w- it was a dynamic program. So what they they were able to really attract some very very high level, uh, physicians to create the medical group. I I began to work with with the phys- with the physician group, and they were really uh, very, very receptive of, of optometry, and we were, as limited as our scope was at that time, they felt that uh, optometry could be doing it a, a lot more than uh, than what the uh, legislation and what the law's statutory uh, definition was, and they effectively told me, they said, uh, we'll support you on anything you want, you know, with standing orders, with, uh, you know, with any, uh, any backup and support uh, you need, but so... Uh, Effectively, within about a year that I was there, they asked me. They said we'd like you to run the eye services and and kind of just uh, keep ophthalmology at arm's length as a consultant. Huh. Call them in if you need them, and if you don't need them, you know if it's if it's a basic uh, primary care uh, need, you know we'll support you on any anything you need in the way of uh, pharmaceuticals.
0: Why do don't you think? So, Lou, was that because – why was that? Was it because you were easier to work with? You were more receptive, more willing, more toward their level? Um, why well, do you think they, would, they wanted to do that?
1: I would, I would have to be perfectly honest with you and say probably the first, the first aspect was cost-effective. We, <laughs> we clearly – we showed them in two regards. We showed them how cost-effective optometry could be. Number one, of course, uh, you know, we, we, back then and probably still now to some degree, Became a lot cheaper than ophthalmology. And number two, we, over the course of that first year, we managed to control surgery at a far better rate than any, any uh, healthcare developing uh, program out in the country. So, oops, I'm sorry.
2: That's, uh, that's all right. So, uh, so obviously those,
1: those were the two reasons from a cost effective standpoint. But once again, I go back to the fact that we were dealing with some very, very sophisticated physicians who really put aside all of the prejudices of medicine and just wanted to do a good job for the patient. And uh, they found that we were doing that better, as they ultimately said, better than they had ever seen ophthalmology do it. And uh, with that, they they encouraged me to start an educational program of some kind to really start teaching optometrists how much they can uh, do so I started the uh, I started the uh, what I, what turned out to be a two-year program, uh, and because I I felt that after a year's time I recognized how how much graduate optometrists at that point in time you know new graduates how much they needed to really be able to start practicing at, at a higher level. Uh-huh. So uh, we developed the program, and I went you know I I basically sent out uh, feelers uh, to the schools and to uh, you know, in general, like some some advertisements and and we got an an enormous crop of applicants and very high level folks people coming out of optometry school that were the cream of the crop, if you would. And people like uh, Murray Fingeret, Linda Caster, people of of that level Mm. were starting to apply. And I, you know, I I had the the pick of the litter and we just made a wonderful program out of it. They really just they, they were behind it a thousand percent along with the medical group. So it turned out to be a very, very, uh, high level program, very successful. Uh, the politics got involved, uh, in the late, in the late seventies and, uh, they, you know, the University of Rochester, uh, Department of Ophthalmology started to really come down on us very heavily, not only on optometry, but on the medical group at large as well. And, uh, we fought them. we fought them them as you know as effectively as we could in the uh not in the legislature at that time it was really a statutory issue and we we had to fight them in the courts and uh, we started we started the program back then which uh, you've probably never heard of but it's both we called it the primary care uh, optometry legal defense fund and,
2: <sighs>
1: and we sent out a, a an appeal to the profession at large asking for support and we got enormous enormous financial support I mean, people like <laughs> you, you may have you may have heard of the the names. That, unfortunately, the two names that jump right into my mind because they were the first two major contributors was uh, with David Sullins.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Did, you ever, did you ever hear that name, David Sullins?
2: Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. He he wrote a check for a thousand dollars back then in 1978-79. That was a lot of money. Another sure. guy from Hawaii, uh, Dennis Dennis Kurabara, Have heard of him, he uh first class guy, and he wrote a thousand dollar check. And we got we wound up raising about 10 grand and it paid for legal fees and stuff like that. However, during that process, uh, and by the way, the the uh the residency program ran throughout this whole process, so uh, (laughs) the residents became very familiar with the politics of optometry, I might
2: add. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. uh,
3: hey Lou back back to kind of your your comments about the residency and and um you know you had the the pick of the the cream of the crop that you could pick from on this um at that point in time were you viewing as you set up that program was it um was it making uh, making the students or the new graduates aware of of their capabilities that they had been trained with or were you adding? you know, more uh, specific training, I guess, were the schools teaching the things that were necessary at that point in time, or were you adding, uh, you know, complementary things on top of that education?
1: They were, they were marginal in some of the areas, uh, you know, disease, mm-hmm. pharmacology. No, I shouldn't say pharmacology. I think pharmacology, they were fine. Uh, they, you know, they, sure. they came out knowing the, the, the diagnostic and therapeutic regimens very well. Uh, what they were very, what they were very weak on, was ex- clinical exposure, and sure. that's really what we provided. We, we did not uh, do anything of a didactic, didactic nature with them. Well, of course, we had grand rounds every, you know, every week, and uh, we had a lot of uh, lectures and you know, small symposia, and all of the, all of the medical group, I might add, were, were heavily involved. Mm. I was rapidly disappointed, and I was out on the stump by then already because. Once again, going back to the medical group, they kind of came to me, the medical director who to me was a he was a he was a, a hero in optometry that very few people know about. his name was Hank Gardner. And he came to me and he was he was a Mormon and he you know he had done a mission and he believed in you know really proselytizing. He came to me, he says, Lou, said you can't keep this within the walls of this health center. He said, you've got to get out there and tell the world about it. And he was the one who forced me out the door to go, you know, to go start uh, lecturing about what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never saw myself as an educator or anything like that. I just went out there and I started talking to people about basically what we were doing. And uh, I I didn't hesitate to tell them. I would stand up there and say, "Look, guys, I'm no different. Maybe I'm even less than what you are, as far as academically speaking." I said, "But I just have an opportunity to uh, to really be able to exercise what we can do as." professional health professional and uh and it's going on i mean i I, uh, I i will admit to you that in the mid-70s uh i was a bit of a you know i was a bit of a, a sideshow you know people would say hey let's go ahead and listen to guy japan he's wild he's you know, crazy uh, <laughs> but uh you know but by the late 70s you know once uh, north carolina went and west virginia went uh people started coming to my lectures more and listening to what i had to say and I didn't have anything to say to them, but other other than the fact that you can do what I'm doing and it's just a matter of uh you got to have confidence and be comfortable and be able to really fuck the system to some degree. And uh that's effectively how it all evolved.
0: You know, part uh, so, of that still, still I think part of that is, um you know, in a lot of cases, it's understanding, you know, sort of there's this mentality of, certainly you want to look out for the best interest of the patient, but there are some times where I try to articulate this when I talk to other doctors too, is that one of the ways that you can learn um, is that you certainly don't want to hurt patients. But you know there are going to be clinical things that you see that you may not see that often. And I think there's because we're a conservative profession, uh, and historically so, because we've got ophthalmology kind of breathing down the back of our necks, it can be very easy for us to kind of punt on certain scenarios that we're completely capable of managing and and in fact sometimes you don't know exactly what the answer is just like ophthalmology doesn't know exactly what the answer is the difference is that uh, you know ophthalmology in general they're ophthalmology so they're going to fa- they're going to handle it and so it's just kind of getting people comfortable with you know you might not know exactly what this is but what's the most likely thing that you're seeing and what's the things you got to be really worried about it being and you can't miss those. And then figuring out, okay, well, this is how we're going to treat it. And then watching how it resolves or watching how you need to augment your treatment. That's, I think is so that's, important.
1: Exactly. That's, that was the value that was not present back in the 70s in optometry, yeah. but the ability to manage a patient and follow them and see the outcome, see, you know, see when things were right, when, when they went wrong. And when I was out on the stump uh, you know, talking to hundreds of people in, in an audience, I never tried to preach you know, presuppose that they were going to, you know, that they were going to be able to go right after it. All I would tell them is, look, guys, I'm not necessarily saying, I'm, you know, you're going to walk out of this room confident, uh, but certainly one should walk out of this company and be able yeah. to start uh, you know, trying to see what you can do to manage patients. There's one other thing that occurred in that, and I want to share it, uh, because I think it's so important is going back to this guy, Hank Gardner, he told me very early on, you know, he said, he said, you as an optometrist, he said, you really should not be treating eyes. You should be, you should be treating people through their eyes. And I really, I locked onto that heavily. And I, I, that's what really got me going with the whole primary eye care thing and developing it, writing on it, lecturing on it. So I, I took on that philosophy. I'm not treating eyeballs. I'm treating people through their eyes. And, uh, and you know, and it's so obvious. I mean, it's the old the poets. What do they say? The wind, the eye is the window to the soul. Well, right. you know, mm-hmm. for, for us, it's the window to the body. Let's face it. Uh right? So I, I, I knew we had a we had a great opportunity to be healthcare professionals. I I see myself as a healthcare professional more than I see myself as an eye care professional.
2: Yeah, I believe sure.
1: that I'm really interested in trying in trying to deal with a person's health and wellness. And obviously meet their eye care needs as well. But, uh, and, and that's all part of the multidisciplinary environment that I was raised in and, you know, through this health center. Because, uh, they, they basically came to us with problems. We went to them with problems. And, uh, and it was a an enormously valuable educational and, and a clinical, uh, kind of delivery system that, uh, that was, you know, that was really written up in the journals over the years as being a very, uh, successful Your prototype.
2: So, were you,
3: as you got the program going and and noticing this kind of gap and practical exposure, did did the academic side reach out to you as you guys developed that to to find try to find gaps and and change what they were doing a little bit, or was that something that you guys pretty much had to keep grinding on yourself?
1: Yes. No. They they started well. I will be first. I'll give you the the negative side of it. The AOA. You know, I, I, went to the AOA time and time and time again saying we've got a model here that we should really start trying to uh, promote, uh, legislatively and, uh, Washington, and they, they wouldn't touch me with an 11 foot pole. So, uh, <laughs> I went, you know, I, I wound up going to the state association and they embraced me. all of the state associations that got involved were very, very supportive. And as far as the schools and colleges, uh, they were, there were margin, I mean, there were schools at that time that had deans that were absolutists about, uh, you know, no, no medication, no drops, you know, we were, we were, and we're a, uh, I forgot what the saying was, you know, we're a, we're a dropless profession or whatever it was, but, uh, but suffice to say that, uh, schools like, uh, Berkeley and, uh, Ohio State and Houston, they had deans at the time that were very resistant to, uh, the concept mm. of primary eye care uh however, there were schools that were that were beginning to embrace it. one of them was p c o of course that had a a long reputation for for uh, pharmaceutical and therapeutic type care
2: and they uh they supported
1: you know they endorsed and uh and and actually i guess, i don't know exactly what the terminology would be but they basically supported the program and made it, made it a legitimate program of their school they were the ones who sent the COE in to, uh, to evaluate us. COE approved us as a uh, accredited uh, accredited uh, residency program. Uh, however, the politics again got involved along the way, and being in the state of New York, this was in uh, Rochester, New York, so in the state of New York, SUNY started getting very antsy and saying, hey, you know, you're in New York State. We should be accrediting you, not PCO, and, you hmm. uh, know, Long story short, is we had to move over. We had to move to SUNY, and we uh, we became accredited by SUNY at that time. But we did get support from the school. Yes, so it took a while.
3: So, how long did it take for for the AOA side, kind of the organized optometry, to come around, or was that more driven because the state affiliates, you know, pushed really. that?
1: Yeah, we, we walked away from the AOA. and didn't even try and uh, try to convince them of, of the value and it was the it was the state association that really got the aoa to start moving in direction. i would say it probably wasn't until the mid to late 80s that the aoa began to support uh, the therapeutic optometry if you would if it was divided back then into dpas and tpas if you call that. Mm. and uh which i i said was ludicrous i said if you if you own a legislature, if you own the, if you own those committees, uh, they 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 don't know what diagnostic versus therapeutic is from a hole in the ground. I said you go in there, and you ask for ask for whatever you want, surgery, and they would have given it to you if, if you had their vote. So, uh, and and West Virginia proved that unequivocally. I mean, they they went in and asked for the, uh, the well, North Carolina as well. They went in and asked for the moon in the sky, and they got it. They got it on first go around because. The legislators didn't know what they were talking about. but They owned them. They 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 had a great political uh, infrastructure in the state. They were able to get get the uh, legislation. It got a little tougher as the years went by because of course the ophthalmology became a little more uh, active and resistant, and, uh, politically active. So to, uh, to, uh, you know we we thought I always say we taught them well. You know we taught the ophthalmologists <laughs> how, to, how to play the political game.
2: Sure.
3: So do you think, you know, I, I guess Chris and I both are, are pretty involved locally within our state. And, and Chris, of course, is very involved on the national level. But um, being involved and kind of seeing behind the curtain is something we always talk about and, and understanding that really at that local level is where a lot of things start and getting involved in your state association to to help move those things forward. I mean, it really sounds like your guys's progression, of course, was was self-driven, and it took you guys kind of having a passion for that to, to move that forward. Um, have with all the things that you are involved in uh, nationally, too. Have you been able to kind of maintain your your local uh, affiliation or involvement with your with your state association, or is that something that you know you kind of have to start picking and choosing what things you you really stay involved or give time to?
1: Pretty much the latter. I, uh, I, I, w- I remain very active in optometry and, uh, the association and the academy and, uh, not the AOA to be perfectly honest with you. I, I really, sure. I abandoned the AOA probably in the 90s for a long time. And, uh, but I worked hard for them in the first 20 years I was in practice. Uh, in sessions, I really worked very hard for them and, uh, I was on a lot of committees and I, you know, I spent a lot of time in Washington DC with the AOA issues. But, uh, at the end of that, and I stayed with it, uh, and I stayed with, uh, organized optometry, uh, and very active educationally, international education. I lost my son in 2011, and, uh, I lost my passion for everything at that time. It took
2: me, mm, about, sure. it. It took me about five or six years to really shake it off and
1: uh, lousy griever. So I came around, and, uh, and now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not, Highly active any longer. To be perfectly honest, uh, I still, you know, I still support local society. I don't, you know, I don't get involved in the in state association or, but, uh, but and, and in the academy. I, I still am a member of the academy. Uh, but I, I don't, you know, I, I don't lecture anymore, and I, I'm kind of finding other areas of interest
2: besides the commentary. Uh, yeah, that I, that I, have, you know, I'm very active with
1: uh, artificial Intelligence, a lot in that area now. Writing books, so uh, trying to keep busy. And but uh, I've always, right right from right from the start of my career, I always I I believed in reinventing yourself as you go along. I did it. I did it throughout throughout my career. I mean, you know, I was heavily involved in uh, therapeutics and uh, politics in the late 80s and 90s. I I started getting involved in um, technology, lasers, like that. And the, and the Different types of lasers. because I felt that that was a good place for me to I wasn't a strong believer in surgery and cutting surgery, but I believe that semi quasi surgical technologies like lasers. I was interested, in uh, so I got involved in that. Uh, then I got involved at the University of Penn with uh, immunology. I got, got heavily into immunology for a while. Uh, still, you know, still active in optometry, of course. But that, was a, that became a keen interest in mine. And, and uh, then in the 2000s, uh, early first decade, I uh, I got heavily involved in wavefront technology as well. Hmm. I believe that a really really embraced wavefront. I didn't do a very good job of it. I lectured I elected all over the country all over the uh, space. I
2: don't
1: think I ever really moved the, the dial very far. So what do you
2: Lou think Lou it was? was? Uh, Lou, let me ask Go you a ahead. question. So, Chris, Chris and I are kind of we
3: we chat technology and and things all the time, uh, just amongst ourselves. And so, when you say you get involved with these different technologies, are you are you getting asked to participate? Are you approaching them and say and giving them your background and your expertise? Or how do you make that connection that an optometrist, you know, ends up in immunology or or at the time in lasers when optometrists weren't Using lasers, how'd you get involved with with the laser side of
1: things? My entree, my entree, and it may not be universal. It's not by any means universal. But my entree was in education. Uh-huh. They knew that I was. They knew that I was very active in education. And, uh, a lot of these uh, laser companies, they laser companies, uh, they started the company and say, uh, "You know, do you know much about the expert Do you know much about the, uh, you know, about the femtosecond laser?" And, uh, and I said at that point in time, I said, well, I could do some reading on it. So we it. You know, can we bring you on as a consultant? And we could bring you up to speed on what we're doing and our research and you can participate in any way you would like. And we'd like you to go out and share this with uh, your profession as well. Obviously, companies knew how valuable optometry was involving technology. So uh, that's the way I became involved, really. They invited me into it. Uh, and I, uh, I embraced it. I embraced it. I believed it. So, uh, sure. there were some technologies I might add that I was not enthusiastic about. A lot of the, a lot of the, uh, refractive corneal surgeries, not including eczema. Eczema, Exhumor, I, I, I believe, was good technology. Had it done on myself and uh, my family. Uh, but some of the intra, you know, intra corneal, uh, rings and the uh, inlays, like that, I had a lot of problems with those and they're turning out to be problems. I guess, uh, they're being recalled. But uh, but otherwise, I mean, I uh, I don't want to say I was able to cherry pick the ones that I I wanted. But, uh, I became involved, and I think I shared them with my profession at a at a high level, so they were able to make their their own education. Why do you think that um, Wavefront was so different than than kind of
0: um, medication therapy? Um, why why do you think your experience with with kind of moving um, diagnosis and treatment within the profession in the 70s and 80s yeah, versus Wavefront in the, in the 2000s? What was
1: the difference? There, yeah, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, I, you know, I, was, I was really, really uh, de- dedicated to trying to make, build that into our profession. I saw ophthalmology, ophthalmology embracing it, developing it uh, more so than optometry you know, and I knew that wavefront, uh, you know, though it might have been developed for uh, guiding eczema laser treatment, I immediately began to see the diagnostic value, of it. and that's what mm. I went out and started sharing with optometry with how valuable a diagnostic tool it was, how little we know about second order, you know, second order vision, or how little we know about vision when we're only at second order, and vision goes up to the eighth, tenth, twelfth order of. Of aberration, and I started trying to not not didactically, but I tried tried to start giving them a picture of what vision vision care really could be. But what uh, I guess the limiting factor turned out to be that I would have people come up to me after the lecture and say, "That's the best lecture I've ever heard. I, I'm I'm excited, I'm boosted. uh But tell me, how can I you know how can I get lenses to, to do these?" Yeah. And uh, at that point in time, and to this day, they really haven't developed a uh, technology that uh, could start addressing higher-order aberrations at a level that, you know, that optometrists can, you know, if I do the right, right term, that they can make a buck off, you know? So, so what they were doing is, the really dedicated optometrists, they would spend thousands thousands of dollars on aberometers and all sorts of uh, technology, but then after a while, they said, you know, what can I? What value is it? I, yeah. I was, uh, not, you know, I, I had trouble arguing that point to some degree. And I kept working with the companies, trying to have them uh, improve. And, you know, Zeiss came up with a you know, with a technology that they claimed was a uh, higher order lens you know, aberrating uh, correction. And uh, I studied it for a while and I concluded that it was not. It was simply not.
3: Huh. Yeah, what and was that lens... What was the lens? I I I cannot recall. But when you purchased it, you got a you got a for an aberrometer, and it was like a green label.
1: Yeah. Oh, that the the uh Aphonics. The yes. technology, and uh, I was a consultant to that company, and that company, I must admit, had a had a very interesting technology. I don't want to go. I don't want to waste time a lot of. Sure. They had a they had an interesting technology where they actually had a a molecule in the lens that would actually you know go cis trans and know, uh, in trying to pick up on uh, certain types of um, <laughs> direction, and, and they were close to they were close to getting approval of it, and but they needed money, so they went out and they uh, you know they got some you know VC money, and venture capitalists they came in and they said you know we we want this thing to go to market in uh, in six to twelve months max, and they were still about two years away from really having a a, a marketable lens. And BCs uh, abandoned them,
0: and they and they went on. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think, Lou? Um, so you know, it's interesting because it, it sort of makes sense why um, you know Wavefront technology didn't didn't take off beyond the ability to diagnose, maybe use it as diagnosing tear film issues or um, you know other you know refractive issues, lenticular issues. But so it makes sense data. why yeah it makes sense why um you know ophthalmology still is interested because they can correct it um, you know with with their lasers but but then the question becomes and, and almost immediately um, how stable has that been over time? So did you follow that where you said, okay, because ideally, if you could actually have a a system where you you look at wavefront, you can fix it and then you can enhance it or tweak it over time in a safe way like you would a, a spectacle prescription or a contact lens prescription. Um, so is that kind of what you were going after?
1: Uh, yes and no, Chris, uh, Chris, is that, uh, Chris,
2: yeah, yes, Chris. Yep.
1: yeah. Uh, yes and no, they, uh, we, we looked at that, you know, that strategy very closely, but, you know, just, just to put it in, in a sentence, uh, we wound up creating more aberrations than we were, than we were correcting after all. Hmm. Done. So <laughs> it really, you know, we were chasing, we were chasing our tail after a while and, uh, and that didn't work out as well.
2: So what do you
3: think? Okay, so the, yeah, go ahead, Drew. So, so what do you think in your career and and kind of going forward, um, with your knowledge base and and in history within the technology side of things, what do you think were maybe two or three of the biggest technology advances within the optometry world, as well as what do you kind of
1: see for future areas for optometry? Well, I I will continue to be Honest about my feelings uh, regarding, uh, surgery. I don't think we're equipped to, you know, to be performing, uh, surgery, intra- intraocular, I'll say. It. Mm-hmm. Extraocular, I'm not on, but you can do lots in that area. The only place, the in intraocular that I think we should be, uh, and it's my opinion, and, uh, I, a lot of people have opposed it, but I, I think in lasers, we certainly can uh, consider laser therapies. Going forward, uh, I you know, I have no problem no problems at all with uh, minus third procedures and you know, whether they be lids, ocular uh, procedures things of that nature. i uh, basically when you get into procedural care experience, you know, doing lots of the procedure is what counts, and I don't think there's any. Any optometry school out there, you know, maybe save Oklahoma, but even that, I'm not sure. Uh, I haven't been following it over yet. Five years. But, uh, I don't think the exposure to, uh, surgical procedures is adequate enough for an optometrist to be able to hang a shingle saying they can do surgery.
2: How do you guys feel about So, it? so Lou, I think, so I, 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 um,
0: I kind of want to expand on that because I wonder, um, you know, my thought has always been uh, training as well. <clears throat> so there has to be a mechanism to train somebody to do what they're doing. And so, you know, I, I I've always thought, well, couldn't it be? Wouldn't it actually be um, really worthwhile? Maybe, maybe, maybe I could agree with you. I went to school in Oklahoma. Um, I felt like my education and training to do um, what was what is provided for the scope of practice in Oklahoma. Um, was appropriate for me to practice in Oklahoma, and then then the question becomes, and I think this is where you're going is, um, okay, moving forward, what's beyond that? So let's let's call it cataract surgery, um, and I would agree. There's got to be a you have to have kind of a, a significant number of cases uh, underneath your belt uh, in order to feel comfortable, even in the surgeries that I was trained to perform, and um, and so so then I wonder, okay, well. Could there be a situation or a scenario where, um, a residency program right now that doesn't exist, but could exist, could train an optometrist to be an excellent cataract surgeon, um, or an excellent retinal surgeon for that matter. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not advocating for that for sure, but I think, I think from a standpoint of, can we get there within four years of education, um, no, probably not. There's too much to learn for, you know, for in addition to your, to your undergrad. But, um, but could there be a mechanism in place by which an optometrist could gain that information, assuming that the laws were in place to allow them to do that and be an excellent surgeon? I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I can't disagree with you. I mean, in an ideal world, in an ideal uh, setting where, where a program could be developed of that nature and uh, good quality of, uh, Procedures or surgical tutoring to be done. Uh, and we're, we're really reaching here now because we're asking, we're asking surgeons to uh, to work with us again on this.
2: Uh, right.
1: I'm sure there are a lot of surgeons out there that would be willing to, but but I I don't know if it's enough to really uh, move the dial. Number one, and secondly, Chris, I'm, I'll, I'll throw one other area into this that I've argued. And do we really? Does the public health really need more surgeons? No idea.
2: I yeah, mean,
1: you know the, the the profession of ophthalmology or the specialty of ophthalmology has almost doubled over the past ten or fifteen years, and uh we've got a lot of surgeons out there. And boy, you know uh, the the rates of surgery in this country far exceed any any country in the world, uh, and it's a product of uh, a lot of surgeons uh, wanting to do
2: surgery. And, yeah, and I know, think I'd love to see. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I wouldn't mind
1: if we had a great program. I'd like to, I would love to see a nice program developed. But the you know, the amount of surgeons that optometry would turn out would be just, you know, minuscule. And uh, again, I don't know if public health at large really needs needs that uh, that addition.
0: Yeah, I'm almost wondering and again, this is this is sort of a pipe dream because I don't actually think it's gonna ever happen where because I think the politics of ophthalmology would have to concede is what you're saying, you know I agree with what you're saying, but you know it would just make a lot more sense to me, um especially outlining outlining the um the kind of history that that you have um that that uh, you know surgeons in eye care would come from optometrists I mean you know you would eliminate this whole path of of ophthalmology training from medical school and then into op- ophthalmology for, for three years after you do a, a year of internship. You know, it would make a lot more sense to have, you know, because that's where that's what they're doing anyway. They're basically getting this broad base of, of knowledge um, that doesn't even come close to the knowledge that we get in optometry school in terms of didactic training on medications and yeah, and right. uh, optics of things. It's not, even, it's not even scratching the surface, accommodative systems, you know, binocular vision systems. Where they're really getting all of that training and kind of the nuances of how they're practicing are in their fellowships. So, you know, you could argue, you, you know, you got, you train a, you train a medical retina guy, and this takes nothing away from him, by the way, but you, you t- train a medical retina guy <clears throat> in a year of fellowship to do injections, you know, for an entire year and maybe some laser work, but, but that's, you know, that's, that's what you, you'll train him to do. And, um, could that be more effectively and more efficiently done, and actually more cost-effectively done throughout that other program? I think it's interesting. I I don't think we're going to ever get there because of the politics. But yeah, you know, what, yeah.
3: That's
0: good. so. And then the other thing, the other thing I think, Lou, and I'd love to have your perspective on in terms of kind of future. I know I'm kind of butting in here on on Lou on uh, Drew's question, but um, you know, I always think it's interesting that you know we're talking about cataract surgery now. That was just something I threw out there, but. Um, I also agree with you that I don't know that that's going to be, you know, the the thing that, that we, we would want to do, especially because um, it seems as though there's all these kind of other mechanisms that people are looking for to help resolve cataracts without surgery or at least prevent them. Right. Um, and they seem to be pretty promising.
1: Yeah. I, I, oh, I, I agree. I agree with the fact that there's advancements being made in those areas, but, but that kind of leads me to... Uh, to an alternate theory, if I, if I may. And, and I'm sure you know that I'm a, I'm a believer in primary care. I really believe that, uh, that, that that is what this world needs and that's what the, that's what the healthcare delivery system needs. And, and that's why I kind of pride, pride my profession in being a primary care professional. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. not, not, not that, not that we can't extend the definition of primary care to include lots of things that one of the things are even mentioning but I would, I would kind of like to see us remain what we can consider a primary care profession rather than a uh, surgical oriented specialty. And specialty, and the reasons are exactly what Chris was mentioning just a moment ago about the advances being made. You know, think about the advances being made in non-surgical areas that optometry could being embraced.
2: I'm talking about genetics. I mean... Genetic mm-hmm. therapies in the next 10 years are going to far exceed anything
1: we know of. Stem cell therapy, uh, immunological therapy, optometry to begin to really start looking more at those kinds of areas, I think we could be an overwhelmingly valuable country you know, to the health yeah. and, and by and large, you know, none of the surgical entities are that interested in those areas. I mean, Lord knows. I referred a number of people for stem cell consideration, and they get talked to surgery and I wonder why you know so yeah. uh, but uh, that 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 would be an alternate approach to what we're talking about here in those areas
0: but do you think that there's um I, I agree i think that i mean I think that's probably probably more realistic about the future. And as long as our laws allow us to have flexibility to be able to integrate those into our practices sure. and participate in the in the research, I think that's that's great. Yeah. what's interesting to me always Lou and and you probably have a lot more perspective on this than I do, but um <clears throat> is the time is the 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 generational development of a new technology What I mean by that is that you know right now there's a lot of discussion on even just the the safety of intravitreal injections so i mean you know it's it's been proven. Uh, safe uh, when it's administered by nurses in the UK you know just as safe as any retinal specialist administering that yeah. but um, now you know we've got these companies that are looking at drop formulations of of these medications and that's going to be the big new thing and, and um, in um in terms of uh, you know anti-vegf treatments so just because the drop formulation came after the injection now all of a sudden that's what everybody's looking forward to as as kind of having this next option And then, and then I don't know if you've seen this, but Allergan is, is developing. I think they're in phase three right now where they're expecting it to be approved uh, quarter one of 2020 is, um, is the implantable, the anterior chamber implantable um, three to six month um, medication delivery system for um, Lumigan.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and so, so we get really excited about that. It's like, okay, well I, I can... You know, in p- terms of patient adherence, and <clears throat> we can make all that stuff go away, but you know, if you told a patient, "Well, I'm going to give you an injection into your eye every three to six months or you can take this drop every night, it really is going to depend on which one is the you know in terms of what everybody's excited about, it's going to be the one that came last you know if If I could tell you that um, I could put this piece of plastic in front of your eyes and make you see clearly at distance and clearly at near, and you wouldn't have to cut your eyes at all. Right. Let's assume that LASIK came years before glasses came. Yeah. You'd be like, "Holy cow! I'm taking that." You know. Yeah. You mean I don't sure. have to cut my eyes to make me see better? Sure. It's interesting. What do you think about that?
1: Oh, I I, I entirely agree. I mean the uh, the the next horizon is always the best uh, is always the best view, <laughs> and uh, and I, I think you know, people patients think that the same way we do, and uh, and but, but again, I'm going to go back to some of those technologies I just mentioned a moment ago. Those, are, to me, at least following literature on areas, those are the new horizons. Those are the things that we're going to be looking at. Uh, I mean, clearly, one could look at genetics as a as the first real place where we'll begin to cure, rather you know, rather than treat. We're going to cure things. go oh, I'm sorry. Let me put it even most things. We're going to pre- prevent things. You know, we're going right. to begin yes. to prevent stuff. And I think. If, if you had a patient who had the option of being treated and maybe cured, or prevent or prevented in the, per, in the first place, I think they're going to opt for that, uh, that. That latter we've talked prevention so many years, and maybe it's on the horizon. But again, with optometry looking more at the at the uh, manual, if you would manual type of approach to eye care, uh, I don't think we're going to get on board early enough really be part of the evolution of some of these more sophisticated levels of how to treat, manage,
2: and... Well, there's, a,
0: there's also this whole other aspect of, um, you know, that, that we have some training in, but certainly uh, to go down the roads that, that we're talking about in in gene therapy and, um, you know, really prevention of stuff, there's, you know, a lot of bioethics that goes into that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, sure. sure, but But... What- those bioethics are not reversing the, the advancement of that field
0: either. You know, when- yeah. So, so I think, how, you know, it's just exciting because you think, all right, well, there's all these cool things that are going to be coming down in terms of, of genetic therapies. But then, you know, then there's the whole other aspect of, you know, um, we've got we've to be integrated. Like you're saying, we've got to be integrated with, with other people because there's people that specialize in counseling with, with genetics. So you know you even even started talking about genetic testing in in a m d well, you know you're opening a whole other can of worms that you may not be equipped uh just through our normal education system to be able to help patients kind of sift through when you're looking at their entire gene picture what What do you think about that
2: oh
1: well, clearly i mean it, there's a whole there's a whole area of education that would have to be evolving along with you know along with our uh, Entry into this area, but let me ask you: What obstacles do we face right now in those areas? Little to none. I mean, yeah. we could we could be embraced as a profession that shows an interest in moving into these areas, whereas uh, you know, once again, going back to the surgical, manual, surgical type of things, we're going to continue to get resisted. I think uh, there's a we could start opening up educational programs and uh, doing. Uh, I'm just talking off the top of my head now, but putting you know, putting together optometric residencies in uh immunological uh settings, in hospitals stuff like that. We would uh yeah. you know, we would uh, we might we might get a, a foot in the door, you know,
2: or nose under the tent. They still use that nose under the tent? <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. okay. <laughs> gotta be careful with the same I use. <laughs> long long gun.
3: So Lou, I one thing I mean I I love hearing your uh your your uh kind of really passion, it sounds like, for keeping a pulse of all these different areas and emerging technologies and, and and knowing where that could be applied. Um Chris and I during these discussions also um we have a question that we do like to ask and we're trying to pick up on on any kind of patterns that we get with that. And so this is uh this is going all the way back to when you were in school. And um, the question is, did you, were you a front row, back row, or middle of the room student? I
1: was a, I was a back rower, man. Big time back row. <laughs> I, I, let me, you know, I, I did an interview for Ohio State University uh, six months ago or something. They they invited me to do a guest lecture, and they, they had this interview process before the lecture. And, and uh, where was I going with that? I, I lost it already. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. and. They asked me about my my academic, my optometric education. They asked me a whole and basically, I finally said, "Look, guys, I said my claim to fame in optometry school was athletic director. So, uh, <laughs> and, and, and they all laughed. And I said, "Don't laugh. We beat Temple." <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's great. So That's that, great.
1: But no, I I was I was a you know I'll go back to the back row of uh, analogy and uh and I, I wasn't. You know, I wasn't a, a great student by any means, and I, and I might add that helped our profession to some degree. But I was able to stand up in front of audiences and say, "Look, guys, ninety percent of this audience probably did better than I did in optometry school.
2: So, uh,
1: <laughs> it, this is there's no magic to this. Anybody could do it if we apply ourselves."
3: I think that yeah, is a huge absolutely. part of doing with with being you know just a lifelong you know a lifelong learner, and and I. Again, Chris and I discuss just always reading whether it has to do with optometry or learning about some other obscure subject that you find an interest in and, and kind of observing it from afar or, or even seeing if there's any correlation to what you do professionally. But, um, being that lifelong learner can take someone, you know, that maybe didn't excel greatly in school, but turn them into something pretty great down the road. Uh, I might
1: be, I might be an, you know, an example of that And Again, it goes back to reinventing yourself because once you start learning more, once you, you know, that, that lifelong learning process you uh once you go through that process, you start seeing new avenues and new arenas that you want to you want to delve into. And, you know, like I said with me, it was, whether it was lasers, whether it was the immunology, whether it was the wavefront, I just kept finding new areas that I want to try and uh, yeah. not master, but to sure. try and be part of.
2: Have you have you ever happened How to take
1: you,
3: a Gallup Strengths Finders test? I'll say that again,
1: please. Have, have you ever
3: happened to take one of the Gallup's uh, strength Finders test? Yeah. To survey, I'm Sorry, curious. There's one. <laughs> there's one that's uh, one of their one of their key 37 key components, though, is learner, and I just would be curious where that hit in your top five.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm
0: not sure. How do you know, Lou? When when you kind of go down the road of finding some of these, you know, newer avenue, and you said reinventing yourself, how do you decide that that's that's something? Is there a process that you go through internally that helps you decide that this is something you're going to leave behind or or stop focusing on another aspect and work toward uh, this new this new thing on the horizon? Yeah.
1: well, Number one, when I I talk about reinventing oneself, I'm not necessarily. I I try to make clear whenever I reinventing I'm not not reinventing yourself at the expense of other things you've done but adding something into what you know what you're doing that might complement what you've been doing or might begin to take you into a new arena and but in either case I mean like you know when I when I got involved in uh, you know in technology the lasers and things like that I didn't abandon eye disease by any means you know, I continue to be very, you know, very involved in the, uh, cornea and, uh, nasty corneal diseases and therapeutic care and things like that. But I, I started to spend more time, you know, the old theory, I mean, what do we use? 8% of our brain in our lifetime, life? you know, I, I started trying to get that 9% level. So. <laughs> but, uh. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it just, you know, I, I, and, by the way, you know, I am I'm, I'm not proud of my history of being a, a mediocre student or anything like that. <laughs> but uh you know, I I look I look at the learning process today and I say what a jerk I was not really embracing it, and getting my head around it more. Uh and I I, I urge that. Like I I've gotta give the commencement speech next week at PCO and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna beg those suckers to to get out there and uh and just embrace learning. Uh try and you know,
0: Henry, and reinvent yourself on my desk. <laughs> <But>, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I think um, you know, one of the things that, that you were very good about doing is being able to kind of, um, you know, have the, see the opportunity. And you also, my sense is that you saw how important that opportunity was, not just for your patients and not just for kind of this, this sphere of, of doctors you were around, but, but really the profession in, in total. And so, you know, if you, if you can think about how do, how do we motivate, you know, when you go and, and you meet with students now, what do you think is a motivating factor for, you know, helping them to say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take whatever it is, if it's immunology or let's say surgery or genetics or whatever it is that they're passionate about, how do you, how do you enable them, empower them to do to, and encourage them to do, uh, you know, to take a stance and, and kind of pursue that?
1: One way, one way I would say, and you know, I'm, I'm going to harken back to uh, Hank Gardner, uh, role model. We've got to, you know, we've got to our our colleagues to find role models, whether it be in optometry or whether it be in another profession or whether it be outside of completely. But find role models that they can really point to and say, you know, that, I want to try and emulate that. I want to try and uh, move in that direction that might that might induce people a little bit more to uh to try and do but uh you've got to uh you gotta feel it. I mean and uh you know let's face it guys we you know when we look at a group of people we know right away that we're not gonna you know reach ten percent of them sometimes which we have to. and uh but uh with optometry I've got i I've got a little concern. You guys may or may not have it as well but I'm not sure we're, uh, you know, we're attracting the cream of the crop anymore in our profession, and uh, the. Uh, I mean, it's not well understandable to some degree, actually. given given the financial aspects of where healthcare is going, uh, you know, one has to wonder if uh, a really top notch fourth year undergraduate student is going to say, "Man, I want to go into and Spend two thousand dollars learning, not to, to make. Uh, seventy five thousand dollars a year but when I can do a master's degree in uh,
2: IT and uh, make two hundred thousand dollars. So we've we've got to be careful
1: on that. Uh, the hopefully hopefully uh it'll continue to be strong.
2: Yeah,
0: it's interesting Lou. I, I um you know I I think the same thing in a lot of ways is that let- you know, certainly you have to want to help people do what they're doing. I love what I do. And you know, I make a great living doing it. But I didn't when I came out of school and and I was also able to um, you know, uh mitigate, you know, it was I was I've been out of school for 11 years now, so it's it's a different world. People are coming out of school with a lot more money than even just 11 years ago. Exactly. Um exactly. so yeah, so that's a challenge. Um I'm I just- think you got to hustle, you know, I I, I, Drew and I have talked about this before, but I think, you know, I, I think no matter what, you, this can be a great profession, but I think you got to hustle. And, um, and, and that's, I mean, that part of it is, I think what you're describing is finding, finding that next thing to reinvent yourself or to invest your time in. And a lot of times I, I think people just like, I don't have time to do that. And, and, um, and I think, you know, one of the things that has really been great for me over the years is just being, Being sort of a yes man, you know, I I don't say no to things well, um, and so I say yes to a lot of things. And and you know, historically, as I look as I reflect back, it's kind of like, well, sometimes I think, uh, man, I got a lot on my plate. I don't know if I I just need to probably scrape some of that away. But um, but everything I look back on, all the things I said yes to in the past, have always begotten good things for me currently and in the future. And so it's hard for me to be like, nah, I can't do that. I can figure out how to do that. And so I wonder if it's just not some of that, you know, maybe it's generational or maybe it's, um. but I, but I can tell you there's a lot of docs that have a lot of debt. I, you know, I talked to one last night and they are, you know, they had a lot of debt coming out of school and they, um and they've thrived. So um,
2: yeah. You know what it, you know what it, it is,
1: Chris? It's, and you, just what you said in the, few, in the moment there, you know, really brings it home to me. You had a passion, you had a passion mm. wanting to, wanting to be successful and, and learn and continue to learn. I, I worry, I worry about the, those in our profession that don't have that passion, especially, uh, especially the new, the new graduates. I mean, without that, you know, we, we, I did a lecture one time uh, for the academy, and it was fire in the belly. You know, there's still mm. fire in the belly. Back in the '70s and '80s, man, we we went to we went to the wall for optometry and what we believed in. Because we had that fire in our belly, we had a passion for moving to the next level. I I'm a little concerned that we uh, we have to recapture that passion. Among our colleagues.
2: Lou, I I
0: couldn't agree more with you, and I don't know if there's a better way to to close that out. Yeah, but I um, you know, I. That's part of what we're trying to do here is is try to get people um kind of the perspective of what it took to get us to where we are. Right. And I think, you know, having these conversations that I've been able to have over the years one-on-one, and if we can do that, you know, and, and Drew and I can do that on on these kinds of discussions, you know, and, and let other people listen to them and hear, you know, what what people have done to get us to the point of where we are right now. Um, maybe that will help at least in some small way to ignite some fires.
1: Uh, I, I applaud you guys for doing this. I really do. I mean, it's, uh, it's probably one of the most valuable things that's happening in our profession. So it's, mm. it's under the radar right now, but it'll be it'll, it'll
3: it'll Well, yeah we, well Lou, really, yeah, we really appreciate your time. And, and, and like Chris said, um, that... That ability for people to understand what it takes, besides just showing up at, at your clinic or showing up in your exam room, and and uh, and not only seeing patients but advocating and advocating for your own profession, I th- I don't think it's just an optometry issue. I think it's I think it's something that that is across the board in, in many professions at at this point in time. But having people like you that can share your experience with where we've been and and uh, how you got us here is 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 really invaluable. I mean, you can you couldn't pay to get that experience. So we really appreciate your time.
2: I I
1: appreciate that. I appreciate you uh, inviting me and and listening to me for an hour.